on this episode of the Wild Rose Vet Podcast. See, I believe that, but I'm a true believer that reptiles love us too. <laughs> reptiles have heat-seeking pineal glands and they just want to stay warm. That is us. not true, Cotty. You can't convince me otherwise. My bearded dragon loves okay. me. <laughs> This is the Wild Rose Vet Podcast with Dr. Savannah Howes-Smith. Today I'm joined by a very special guest. Uh, It is Nurse Connie, and she is a wonderful human being. And I've been working with and volunteering with Connie for a number of years now. And we work together in a couple of different organizations. And uh, we have done some wonderful work over the years. And this is a fantastic, massive topic And I'm sure both of us could talk about it for hours on end if you let us. And I think uh, what I'd love to hear, though, Connie, first is what is your definition of what the human-animal bond is? (laughs) Well, of course, we can use the American Veterinary Medical Association of the human-animal bond, which is a... I want Connie's definition. (laughs) I want Connie's definition because it's more interesting. The the human-animal bond is a deep, emotional, biological and social relationship between humans and non-human animals. Or in the case of breaking of the bond in terms of uh, neglect or frank animal abuse, um, non-beneficial effects on both the human and the animal. But really, it is our deep biological, emotional, and social relationship with non-human animals. I think it stems from our strong drive to connect. I think in today's day and age, the way that we live, we forget how deeply social human creatures are and how much we need that connection with other living things. Exactly. And it it comes from our entire evolutionary history with animals. Mm -hmm. Right. If we work way, 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 way back, um, earliest relationships with animals We're not necessarily using dogs for protection, Mm -hmm. but they were part of apparently a religious rite because there are uh, excavation of burial sites 6,000 years ago, way up in northern Russia, that have animals or dogs being buried with humans. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a a very longstanding friendship between our species and uh, it's it's just it's awe-inspiring when you think about it how two very different how how such different animals can coexist and and thrive together um and you know humans are it always it's endlessly entertaining to me the things that humans will bond to i mean like (laughs) we have relationships with insects we have relationships with fish we have relationships with uh, with reptiles and not just mammals so it's like our, the human ability to connect with almost anything I mean even inanimate objects I mean how many people yes. Like, yes. bond to inanimate objects so just our ability to form these connections is is astounding it's probably a little different with an inanimate object but uh, <laughs> um, you know there's there's there have been lots of studies looking at the release of endorphins which are um, 
essentially opiates that are produced inside the body to make feel better people feel better the release of oxytocin the love hormone mm-hmm. uh, the lack of release of cortisol the stress hormone they have it uh, they've done a lot of this research with with dogs and uh, there was one study that I really love where this one man even looking at his pet, would cause an increase in, of endogenous opiates and a decrease of cortisol. And then I love to ask my students, so what pet do you think that was? And they're always saying dog. I'm sure it was a dog. A couple of people will say, well, maybe it was a cat. I don't know. Mm-hmm. He was looking at a snake. See, I believe that, but I'm a true believer that <laughs> reptiles love us too. <laughs> Reptiles have heat-seeking pineal glands, and they just want to stay warm. That is us. not true, Connie. You can't convince me otherwise. My bearded jacket <laughs> okay. loves me. <laughs> okay, fine. Okay, fine. <laughs> but we do have these strong biological and social relationships with our animals, um, it, whether it's a cat or a horse or a miniature pig. Um, we can develop this very, very strong relationship. And the animal has that bond with us. Some people try and say that, oh, it's all learn behavior. But no, no, if you look at their salivary cortisol and their blood levels and everything else, just petting a stressed out dog in a uh, shelter situation will reduce cortisol levels in them. And that's not even somebody who the dog knows. Yeah, yeah. There's some. So, there's one really wonderful study that demonstrated an effect of pain relief simply with the calming presence of a person on a dog. And I thought that study was beautiful. I love that. Yes. 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 It's one. It's, it's incredible. Um, so this bond, it's so, you know, with, with some of the work we're doing with Alberta helping animals society Mm -hmm. and with Canadian animal task force, we see situations that we would, that we would not necessarily want to be in. Mm -hmm. And we see how that animal is so important. We have a client who stays on his methadone program even though heroin provides a much better high for him because he wants to wake up in the morning for his cats. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it becomes their reason for their, it becomes their reason for being their reason for continuing forward and putting up with the, the crappy parts of life. Right. Yeah. I mean, can you imagine that? I mean, I'd much rather be, you know, enjoy my own simulations, but to give it up to wake up for your cat is Absolutely amazing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. In fact, it's more than one cat. He took over uh, a cat from um, a neighbor who um, died of an overdose. Yeah, it's just <laughs> a, it's just fantastic. You know, I I love that, and um, it's also fascinating to think about how like we sure we have this like very very long history of human animal bonding. But what I also think is interesting is how different it manifests over time and how social and cultural contexts will change how that bond is expressed as well. That's right. That's right. That's that's why we have to think of this as a dynamic relationship because the bond we have with that cute little kitten cat, um, that little bitty kitty that we just think is so entertaining and everything else and lots of fun and, but do not sleep with me because you're going to bother me all night long. To when <laughs> okay, that's that fair. Is, Some cats are hell beasts in the middle of the night. <laughs> yes. But when they're, when they're 20 years old, and they have kidney disease and hyperthyroidism, and then that little matted, skinny, bony body crawls into bed. You just 
cuddle it. You can't right? say no because you know you don't have much time left, right? You don't have any time left. Yeah. So I love the way we see the bond change. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and we also see it. I feel like I'm seeing it more than, I mean, I haven't I haven't been kicking around in vet med for very long, so I don't notice a huge difference. But um, it seems to be trending more towards the animals are belonging to the families rather than to individuals. And you end yeah. up having to kind of consult with everybody in the household in order to achieve the best outcomes. Like, I mean, the best example I can think of is when I'm trying to diagnose food allergies in a dog and we have to restrict <laughs> the food that it gets. I need to talk to everybody in that household to make sure everybody's on the same page so that dad's not feeding him pizza crusts. <laughs> right. Exactly. And then and it becomes I mean, it can be a little more nuanced than that in that it used to be that we would have one person on the medical record. They make all the decisions as to the health care of that animal. Nowadays, I find I'm usually having to discuss with in-laws. I'm having to discuss with their significant other. We have to discuss with the kids. And it seems like we're getting more of like a family dynamic, family collaboration about health care decisions for pets. I know it. I love it. It's the bonded family, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. right? I, I think it's fabulous. Yes, it takes more time. And yes, you end up in family controversies. But, you <laughs> yes. know, it just shows that the role of the pet has now become a family member in many situations, not in every situation, yeah. but in many situations. And, and that allows us to then get a better perspective of the entire family and provide the appropriate uh, medical care for the whole family, mm -hmm. not just for the mother of the family, mm -hmm. not just for mm -hmm. the father of the family, not just for the child yeah. uh, brings the animal in, but for the entire family. And the outcomes for the pet end up being the best outcomes. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I wonder if that's uh, because that's becoming more, more common and more prevalent to have that um, I think that ties into our previous conversations we've had about, um, you know, providing spectrum of care where you've got one person in the family wants to give like the gold standard. The other is like, well, it's just a dog and you end up in these like family conflicts. And so, again, that's oh, yeah. where I feel like the vet oh, has yeah. to fit in there and be like the vet team has to be super flexible to try to like reconcile <laughs> where we're going to go with this. Right now, I'm I'm working with a with a wonderful client who I love dearly, um, and a very very sick animal who's probably not going to survive the weekend. Mm. Um, but due to cultural issues and um, just not being able to accept the death of this animal, yeah. um, it's this anticipatory grief is so strong on one of the family members that you know it's we're, we're counseling the other family members on how do you deal with a family member who's having a difficult time with this? Yeah. Yeah. And that's uh, a, that's a new field of um, grief counseling related to the loss of animals. It is. It is. So did I tell you that we're having our very first um, um, pet grief counseling session with Oh, a, we finally so solidified it. Hey, we finally did. I'm so excited. That's I won't really exciting. I'll, I'll just introduce it. But I think, you know, we need more and more of this. I was going to um, say, so. can you describe like what the what it's going to look like and what that involves? Like, what is this grief counseling session? Because both of us know about it. We've been talking about it forever. But <laughs> so we're going to have our first pet grief counseling session. Um, and I've invited uh 
five, but there's actually six coming. Six people who have lost an animal recently. Um, some who have who say they're very they feel they've very successfully come to grips with their grief. Some who are in the depths of it. Um, and we have a psychologist who's coming in who's used to grief counseling, not so much animal grief counseling. Um, and they're going to all talk about their issues. Um, I we provide the juice boxes and then disappear because they're also <laughs> our clients, and this is not my this is not my skill set. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but they're going to come in and they're going to start talking, and and I hope they can provide a support group um, that may branch out um, to other people who are having problems coming to grips with their grief over the loss of their pet or the future loss of their pets. Yeah, I'm really happy that it's being recognized as valid because when I was when I was younger, I think I I never understood why I felt so strongly whenever something bad happened to our animals or when they passed away. Um and and some people didn't seem to it just wasn't understood. Like I would try to explain like how much this affected me and people yeah. just wouldn't get it. And so it's nice to see that um, we're starting to recognize the importance of that bond, how it can be so important to some people and that it's real, it's valid, it's not silly, it's not unusual. <laughs> one, one theory of the human-animal bond is that um, these, these pets and the experiences we have with them define our own personality. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, they're, they're one of the many spectrum of events and activities and objects that give rise to our personalities. So when the, when the pet dies, we really have lost a part of ourself. Wow. And it's something that makes our clients feel better is when I say, you know, your pet is always part of your heart. And always part of you, even if your pet isn't there with you, they're part of you. You can't change that. And your pet will always be with you. That's a beautiful way of phrasing it. You're going to make me cry, Connie. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. (laughs) (laughs) I'm so glad we've got that uh, counseling session together because that's such a great idea. Yeah. Yeah. Um, But we could also use the human-animal bond to help the human. We have Mm -hmm. uh, a client who has issues with with hoarding. Um, And what we've done is we are working on the hoarding and Mm -hmm. you know some people in the in the house in the um, apartment complex also you know don't like the hoarding Mm -hmm. and the, the little pet is older and you know, it doesn't always smell so good. So we're teaching her how to use pee pads for her puppy. Mm-hmm. And um, then every time she takes to go throw the pee pad away, she takes an object. Oh, that is so some classic, we, like, bridging really, stimulus right there. <laughs> I know, exactly. So we're putting that together. So oh, <laughs> she's goodness. taking the pee pad and the object and she takes a picture of it and sends it um, to show that this is what she's doing. And she's, she stands up straighter. Uh, she can actually walk all the way to the garbage. And now the little old dog um, walks further with her. They're both losing weight. They both look fantastic. Oh, that's great. And she feels good about herself. So we can use the bond not just to support the animal, but to support the human as well. Well, like you said in your definition, it's a two-way street. You know, it's supposed to be mutually beneficial. So Exactly. Yeah, no, that's fantastic. I'm glad to hear about that. I like hearing those stories. I like hearing how it goes well. (laughs) 
Yeah. That's always nice. Well, it, can, it can also go poorly, right? Well, yeah. If we, if we in veterinary medicine make something too difficult, again, I'm sorry to bring up end of life situations, but when we're at the end of life and we start pushing for do this medication, do that medication, mm-hmm. you have to do this then and this then and everything else. And, you know, give this medication every six hours, which means setting alarm. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Then the then the person loses a positive relationship with their animal, whereas if we can just provide some palliative care, yeah, maybe, maybe a long-acting painkiller um, that's easy to administer, mm-hmm. and not worry so much about treating all the other symptoms, and just enjoy and, the time that you have left. And exactly, enjoy what time there is left, and then the bond has not been broken. Yeah, that's a that's a I mean, an oddly. <sighs> It's, it doesn't seem like it on the surface, but I would argue that that's a revolutionary concept in the context of veterinary medicine because we're not, we don't have a ton of training in palliative care. Um, it's a newer topic. And I think it's, even in human medicine, I feel like it's, it's got some ways to go. Oh, yeah. And, uh, but I love the concept because that's a, I think that's a good way to appeal to veterinarians and, and veterinary teams that maybe are not confident with palliative care or feel that they're providing lesser care by not sending home yeah. six medications. <laughs> um, I think it's a it's a more comforting way to think of it, to be like, this is the goal of it. It's not the goal. We're never going to make the multiple endocrine problems back to normal. That's never going to happen. What in, It's almost like shifting the goalposts. Like what mm-hmm. is what is it we're actually trying to achieve here? Are we trying yep. to achieve perfect homeostasis in a body that's failing due to age? Or are we trying to provide the best end-of-life care that we can? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's unavoidable to not bring up the end of life care when it comes to talking about the human animal bond, because it's the fact of the matter is most of the time humans live longer than their pets. And so anytime you get a pet right off the bat, I mean, you know, it's someday you're going to have to say goodbye. (laughs) And it's probably one of the most emotional parts of owning a pet as well. And it's an inevitable part of owning a pet. So I think that's why it often does come up when we're talking about human animal bond. Um, exactly. It's oh, but you just brought up a tough part when the pet outlives the owner. Yeah, yeah. And that's that's the one I have a difficult time with. Is mm-hmm. you know I always tell our clients we do not uh, euthanize a wagging tail, but there are times after the owner has died, and you've got a little old animal that's not going to make a transition to another situation at all. Well. Mm-hmm. Well, you mentioned earlier broken bonds. I mean, I think it happens again. It's a two-way street. Yep. Uh, when yep. that bond's broken, I mean, you can't you can't deny that it doesn't affect the animal that's on the other end of it. Exactly, exactly. So that's that. But that's always tough on me is that euthanasia. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and sometimes, especially with our our clients in particular at Alberta Helping Animal Society, many times uh, the pet is is their family, and they may not have contact with anybody else. So many yes. times there's not even anybody that can take care of them. Afterwards. That can't take care of it, even though there are wonderful agencies that will take senior animals. Yeah, yeah. We had a really cool. Nice. I mean, it's not a cool case, but it, it was. <laughs> I know what you a, mean. An interesting was, case, it, I guess. It was. It was a lovely end of life situation for both, where the owner and the pet died within a week of each other oh, and then were cremated together. Yeah. That's... It was, it was, it was kind of sweet. And, you know, the family really wanted that. Um, and it just happened that that's the way it worked out. Yeah. It just kind of worked out in the end. Yeah, too bad that doesn't happen more often where things just work out. <laughs> yeah. Right. <laughs> it's right. a little more difficult. 
Yeah. Oh, let's think of fun things. Yeah, about I was going to say the mood all, got dark. All these sad <laughs> things got heavy. It's supposed I to mean, be fun. It's a good topic too. Like, <laughs> you know, it's great for kids to have an animal in the family because mm-hmm. they learn leadership. They learn communication styles. They have somebody they can cry on when they come home from a bad day at school. Yeah. Um, it's it's so important for kids to to have a have a family member. It always uh, makes me so happy when I have um, parents bringing in an animal. And many times these are because I see the exotics at my practice. I'm usually the one that I, I feel like this happens more often with exotic animals for some reason, where it's the the children's pet, like it's the kid's pet, and the parents are like at arm's length because they don't like it or they don't care about it. It's not a dog. They're like, why do you have a bird or why do you have this snake? And the kids just head over heels in love with this thing. Yeah. So I feel like I see it very often where, yeah. I mean, honestly, even just yesterday, I had a case where it was a, a new bird that they got, and it's definitely the girl's bird, and the mom is like, I don't like it. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Um, and so I see that a lot, but it's you're right. It's so important. I I love to see the the level of responsibility that it gives them, and it's a responsibility that they seem to actually want. It's not like you know the heavy responsibilities of like going to school or family obligations, like none of that. Like this is a responsibility they specifically chose. And many of these kids, they take pride. Mm-hmm. in what they have learned and what they are doing. I mean, you ask any of those kids that bring in like a hamster or a gerbil or whatever, and they will talk my ear off about all of the things they've looked up and researched and learned about and how they like give them cardboard tubes to go in and how they like change their bedding every day. And they're just so excited about it. And I absolutely love seeing that. I know. Isn't isn't that fabulous? And I love, as an educator, I, of course, love building in. So now let's calculate (laughs) (laughs) how much food your animal needs. So that's also a lot of fun. So yeah. Oh, no, that's great. Yeah, that's great. I feel like maybe we we should have a brainstorming session about how we can do some more kids stuff with AHA. We used to have a couple of things. So I feel like I'd love to get back into supporting that kind of a deal. Because, I mean, many of these Many of the kids in the socioeconomic groups that we work with, many of them are having a rough go in life, in school, in their family relationships. So I feel like that bond also provides a bit of stability in some situations. Exactly. exactly. That really is is beneficial for kids. And so I would love to, we should we should get a brainstorming session. Uh, yeah, we do. We need, to figure, mm-hmm. we, we, we need to be able to do it when families feel safe bringing kids together again. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Right. <laughs> but yeah, yeah, I think I love that. I mean, I, I I don't know if anybody who's had childhood pets ever forgets their childhood pets. And they, they seem different than getting a pet as an adult because I've, I mean, I've, I, obviously I really enjoy the animals that I have and I love how I've uh, acquired said animals. But it definitely, it feels like a different relationship than when you're a kid. When you're a kid, it's like all encompassing and you feel like this this animal is legitimately like your relative. (laughs) Right. Exactly. Right. Like it just, it's such a strong connection when they're kids versus when you get older, it's, you've got so many other things going on that goes into it. You kind of lose a little bit of that magic. I want to say it's not quite the same. Except when you you get older, maybe that's your only family member. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So then it gets, it takes on that same importance at, at that point. So yeah. Well, that's interesting. Very fluid. Very fluid. Can be very different and manifest in a lot of different ways, that's for sure. Well, have a good rest of your day, Connie. Thanks again. See you guys. All right. See you. Bye. 
thank you for listening to the Wild Rose Vet Podcast. If you like the show, please leave us a five-star rating and a review. And while you're at it, why not tell your friends about us? Subscribe to us on Spotify, Apple Podcast, or wherever you're listening to us right now. Check out the show notes to see where you can find us on social media and for more information on the Dr. Savannah Wild Rose Vet television series. The Wild Rose Vet Podcast is hosted by Dr. Savannah Howe-Smith. Produced by Trent Wilkie, Shirley McLean, Dylan Wirtz, Tanya Coney-Gauthier, and Valerie Oud-Marchand. Recorded by Ian Armstrong at Wolf Willow Studios. With original music by Wayne LaVallee.